So lesson three is entitled The Cleanliness Code. We're going to be tackling Leviticus chapters 11 through 16, what most commentators and scholars will call this section the cleanliness code because it deals with cleanliness laws about animals and persons and things, and then it kind of crescendos with the great feast of Yom Kippur. So that's what we're going to be looking at right now. Just to recap how this lesson is going to connect with the last lesson, because again, it's all connected. We don't want to look at each of these sections as if they're just like, oh, it's a new subject. It is a new subject, but it's connected. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the last lesson, we talked about the priestly code, the sacrifices that Israel was supposed to offer up to God, those that atone for sin, that those uh, do not atone for sin, those that expiate it, those that don't expiate it, those that express communion with God, those that restore communion with God, this kind of concept. We talked about all of that, and it's the priests who offer the sacrifices. And so what sacrifices do is they purify and they sanctify, right? And that's the connection that we're going to talk about here with the cleanliness code. So the sacrifices that we discussed with the priesthood that we discussed in lesson two flows into this lesson, which is the cleanliness code, because sacrifices purify. They cleanse Israel, the priest, the tabernacle, and then they also are going to sanctify. And that's going to be the topic for our final lesson next time, lesson four on the holiness code. So that's really the... The, the method of the madness, right? That's the golden thread through all of this. So it begins with sacrifices because sacrifices purify and sanctify. And so we're going to see like, okay, what does purity mean? What does cleanliness mean? That's going to be the topic for today. Now, as we jump into this, we look at some introductory remarks here. Like what does it mean to be clean or to be pure? What are these cleanliness laws, these purity laws? How does that come, uh, connect with holiness laws? They're distinct uh, but they're very much related. So what I want to do is take you to your commentary, the Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. They do, so Bergsma and Petrie, does a, they do a fantastic job, I think, in all the various readings that I've done here in explaining the difference between these two things. So let's go to there. I, I got these reproduced here in your notes. Now let's go to the first quote. It's really one long quote, but I want to highlight all of this for you because it's going to be very important, not just for this lesson, but also for the next lesson. Okay, so it begins, quote, The cultic system of Leviticus is based on two complementary but distinct categories of evaluation. Number one, the cleanliness spectrum, which evaluates things on the range from clean to unclean with gradations. And two, the holiness spectrum, which evaluates things on a range from holy to common, again with gradations. Okay, so Leviticus, and again, the sacrifices that are related to them, Really, Leviticus has these two categories, cleanliness and holiness. So something could be clean or unclean, holy and common. Well, what's the difference? It goes on. On the one hand, cleanliness is a measure of the, and here it's italicized in the book, right? It's, this is the definition. Cleanliness is a measure of the suitability of something to be in the presence of God. It is a measure of the suitability of something to be in the presence of God. So unclean things are not suitable to be in the divine presence, whereas clean things are, okay? So God is perfection, right? He is holiness. He is purity. He, he is like everything that we're not, right? So, he, so for something to be in God's presence, it's got to be suitable, right? You just can't have anything just kind of going before God's presence. Now, there's going to be consequences for that. So if you want to be in God's presence, to be suitable to be in his presence, you got to be clean. Unclean things cannot go before the divine presence. So something can be either common and either clean or unclean, right? If it's unclean, you got to cleanse it. You got to purify it. Now that's distinct from holiness. It goes on here. The quote says, holiness, on the other hand, is a measure of the presence of God itself, right? It's a measure of the presence of God itself. 
that goes on. The holy thing is, is somehow imbued with or mediates the divine presence, whereas a common thing does not. So cleanliness is kind of like a prerequisite almost, right? It's suitability to be in the presence of God, but then holiness is a participation somehow in the presence of God itself. Now to be holy, uh, we're going to talk a lot about this next week. And as a matter of fact, so this lesson is all about the cleanliness laws, what, what it means to be in the presence of God, suitability to be in the presence of God. And then the next lesson is about the holiness laws, a participation or a measure of the presence of God itself. They're distinct, right? So a holy thing has to be clean. Nothing can be holy and unclean at the same time. And a holy thing can be defiled and unclean and therefore must be made clean again. So all the holiness stuff we're going to talk about in lesson four, right? We're zeroing in on the cleanliness stuff. If you want to be in God's presence, it's, it's got, there's suitability that to be in God's presence. That's what we're going to talk about. You ever heard the expression, cleanliness is next to godliness? I grew up with that expression. My mom said that all the time. Okay, so cleanliness is next to godliness. It's actually not rooted here in Leviticus. It just kind of popped into my mind. I looked it up. Apparently, it's John Wesley who is the origin of that. You have this concept, certainly in the Old Testament here in Leviticus and so many other places, but there's something that expression, I think, really highlights very well, this concept like <laughs> if your cleanliness, suitability to be in the presence of God is next to godliness because godliness or holiness is a measure of the presence of God itself. So wrestle with that. Think about that. This stuff is not easy. It's hard for us moderns uh, who are separated by time and space. And like, there's just so many complicated things about all of this. But I really like Bergsman and Petrie. They, I think they did a good job breaking that up. Well, as a matter of fact, they conclude this quote by saying, since God has come to dwell with Israel in the tabernacle, all the people of Israel must maintain themselves and their camp in a state of cleanliness, that is suitability to be in the presence, in the divine presence, the presence of holiness. All right, so this is very pedagogical as we're going to see here. So to be in God's presence, God is holy. God is, is truly awesome in the capital A sense. It's not like awesome like pizza is awesome or a movie is awesome or a great play uh, on the field, on the sports field is awesome. God is just truly awesome. He is holy. He is pure. Uh, he, he's amazing beyond all comprehension. And so God is going to be teaching Israel, as I'm going to share with you this lesson, he's teaching Israel you know, you want to be in my presence. I want to be with you, right? God loves Israel. We've saw all this with the book of Exodus. On Mount Sinai, God is with his people. He wants to remain in his, with his people through the worship of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a, is a portable Mount Sinai. We discuss all of that in the Exodus course. He, he wants to be with his people. But the problem is his people are unholy, right? And they're unclean. So how do you reconcile this? And that's honestly, as I've said before, the title of this course. A holy people for a holy God. You got to make the people clean. You got to make them holy to be with God. Okay? So uh, I think that's a really good quote to break down here for you from your Catholic introduction to the Old Testament that kind of distinguishes these two different concepts here. Think about that, ruminate over it, um, because again, it's not necessarily perfectly intuitive for us. There is there is a lot of typological connections here for sure, as I'm going to share with you from Paul in 2 Corinthians, where I'm ahead of myself. There is a, a great concept that even we in the New Covenant era, the era of the church, we can't go before God's presence if we're unclean and impure, right? We can't do that. We need, we need to be cleansed. And that's, of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, so with that clarification, let's move on and look at chapter 11 is clean and unclean animals. And then we're going to look at clean and unclean persons. And then we're going to 
like just cap everything off with the great feast of Yom Kippur, which is uh, very intentionally placed at the end of this cleanliness code. So Roman numeral two, clean and unclean animals. That's going to be chapter 11. Now there are three types of animals under consideration here. The first type are those clean animals that are for a kosher diet. Okay, we've all heard of the word kosher before. Kosher comes from the Hebrew kasher. It means surprise, surprise, to be suitable, right? This is food that is suitable. It's clean food. It's suitable food uh, for Israel's diet. Now, there's all kinds of distinctions here. Chapter 11 goes through first land animals, then water animals, then birds, then insects. So those land animals that are clean, they have a cloven hoof, and they chew the cud. It's kind of gross, actually, to chew the cud. It means that an animal like will chew up, like a, like a cow, right, will chew up the grass, then regurgitate it back into its mouth, so gross, and then chew it up again, right? So that, that's to chew the cud, okay? So you got ox and sheep and goats, even like deer. Now, those are clean animals that are for a kosher diet. Water animals, they have to have fins and scales. So therefore, you have like eels and uh, shellfish and lobster, those types of animals of the water. They're, they're bad. They're, they're not kosher. They're not suitable. And then you got the clean birds. Those would be turtle doves and pigeons. And so, uh, like, for example, carrion birds, like vultures, right? They're unclean. Why? Well, because they feed off of dead animals, the dead things. And we're going to see that's very, very bad. And all of this, death has no place in the presence of God. So uh, that's going to be a key point throughout this whole lesson. So carrion animals, that's not good. And then finally, insects. Insects that you can eat that are kosher, that are suitable, are all various kinds of land locusts and grasshoppers and so on and so forth. We know John the Baptist ate you know, locusts and wild honey uh, in his ministry. So you can't eat spiders, you know, which is good. You can't eat cockroaches. I wouldn't eat that anyways. <laughs> uh, so these are the types of animals uh, that you can eat. They're suitable for your diet. What's super interesting about this the Navarre Bible really kind of talks about how this really is reminiscent. It's in your footnote, footnote number two. It's very reminiscent of the creation account in the book of Genesis. Now, it's not in the exact same order, of course. If you go back, you know, the fish and the birds are on day five. And on day six, you got the animals and the bugs. Then, of course, um, human, uh, Adam, is created and Eve, created on the sixth day. So it's not exactly the same order, but I think it's really interesting. I'm going to share a point in just a moment here about a connection here about clean animals versus unclean animals in terms of sacrifice and diet in just a moment and how it connects with Genesis. But certainly, as Leviticus 11 goes through these types of animals, it does echo day five and day six of creation. I think on purpose here. Oh, I, I know on purpose, but I'll share an idea uh, that kind of occurred to me. So let's move on. So that's so the first category is clean animals for a kosher diet. The second category is clean animals that are permissible for sacrifice. And category two is related to category one. And so your uh, Catholic Bible dictionary, as a matter of fact, will say this. The objects of the Israelite sacrifice were heads of domestic livestock, cattle, sheep, and goats, and a few species of birds like turtle doves and pigeons. That is only those animals that the law declared clean and permissible to eat. That's interesting. So the animals that are permissible, that are suitable for sacrifice, are the same animals that are suitable for eating. They're one and the same, right? So unclean animals, the quote goes on to say, included many, uh, mainly wild animals, which were never placed on the altar of worship. Right? You don't go throw an orangutan, <laughs> you know, on uh, on the altar right there. You don't you don't do that a monkey or any uh, crocodile. You know, you don't do that type of thing. That's that's not suitable for worship. It's so fascinating that the animals that are 
kosher and suitable for a diet are the same animals that are suitable for sacrifice. And so the third category, unclean animals, aren't fit for either food or consumption or sacrifice. They're on a category all of their own. They're not suitable to eat or for sacrifice. Please keep that in mind, this connection between what we would call table fellowship, right? What you put on your table and what you offer up to God, they got to be the same. Okay, that's a very interesting connection. Now, here's a personal thought of mine, and, and it kind of was jogged by this quote that I shared with you from the Navarre Bible that, you know, these animals are reminiscent of the creation account in the book of Genesis. And that's very true. And so you may or may not remember, uh, hopefully you listened to the Genesis course uh, that we have here on scriptureandtradition.com. I talked at length a little bit about, because you can always talk more about these types of things, um, but a lot of people will say that Genesis contradicts itself because chapter one and chapter two have a different order of creation. There's you know, various things that are happening. And long story short, I can't get into all of it right now. It's a contradiction. Okay. So what's interesting is that I shared uh, based on your commentary that chapter one of Genesis, God creates absolutely everything from this transcendent, omnipotent viewpoint, right? It's kind of like the wide angle view of creation. But then chapter two, it zooms in. It's the narrow view of creation, and God is more imminent and more intimate with Adam and Eve and the creation. He speaks to them and gives them a job, right, to till the garden and to keep it. So before marriage, you got to have a job, right? We're talking about all this stuff. But what's so interesting here is that when God, all the animals in question in chapter two, in this very intimate chapter, they're, they're domesticated animals, right? So the animals of chapter one are all the animals, all the wild animals of creation. But chapter two is kind of like a, a snapshot of the sixth and kind of in related to the seventh day of creation. It's all the domesticated animals. So what I find so interesting, my personal thought with this is, and I hope I'm not a heretic, but I doubt it. My personal thought is that the kosher law, so the, the, the food that is suitable for eating and the food that's suitable for sacrifice is kind of echoing back that time in the Garden of Eden when God creates Adam and Eve, very intimate, very imminent. He, so he walks with them in the cool of the garden. That's the implication. It's kind of like going back, echoing back to this moment of covenantal peace, of shalom, of harmony. I, I think that's what's kind of going on here. The sacrifices that are, that are required or permitted and the food that's permitted is making Israel think back to that time in the, in the Garden of Eden where man and God dwelt together. I think that there's something to that. And take it to prayer and leave comments in the comments section if you'd like uh, to kind of develop that. But I think that there's a beautiful connection there. Okay, so those are the types of animals. Then the biggest question is, I mean, the, the, the pink elephant in the room is, why are certain animals prohibited from Israel's diet when number one, if you go back to Genesis chapter nine, right after the flood, let me flip there here myself. In Genesis chapter nine, right after the flood, God says to Noah, chapter nine, verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Just don't eat flesh with the blood. We'll talk about that prohibition is actually uh, repeated in Leviticus uh, 17. We'll look at that in the next lesson. But the point here is that God, after the flood, gives Noah and his family and all of humanity permission to eat absolutely anything they wanted to. They could eat their pork. They could eat their, uh, you know, their bacon, their shellfish, their lobster. Uh, they could eat all that kind of stuff. Well, then why is it prohibited now in Leviticus? Something similar comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ. The reference is here in your notes in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. I'll flip there myself here. Mark 17, or sorry, Mark chapter 7, verse 18. 
He says, Jesus is speaking. He says, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see? I love how Jesus smacks down the Pharisees all the time. All these religious leaders. You're without understanding. He's like, you're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> all right. Uh, you are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and so passes on, thus he declared all foods clean. Mark kind of comments on that. So Jesus says all foods are clean. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't defile you. And then related to this in Acts chapter 10, this is going to be, we're going to come back to this passage a couple different times here. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a very famous vision, right? He's hanging out. He gets hungry. And he kind of he falls asleep because he's hungry and waiting for them to finish the food. He's kind of waiting a long time, I guess. And he has this vision, this kind of this dream of the sh- a kind of a sheet descends from the heavens. And inside of this sheet, uh, well, I'll just read it here. He fell into a trance and heaven was opened. I'm in verse 11. And something descending like a great sheet let down by four corners of the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. These are all unclean foods that God is telling him to eat. And then the voice came to him a second time saying, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this happened three times. It's so funny. In Peter's life, there's always a repetition of three times. Three times he falls asleep in the garden. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times he's reconciled to proclaiming his love for Christ. Three, three times God says to him, dude, just eat the food, right? What I have cleansed, do not call uh, uncommon or unclean. And then Peter later, Peter later realizes, oh, okay, this is, there's a point to this. This is referring to the, to the Gentiles. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. But the point here is, hey, God said to Peter, eat whatever you want to, right? So why? Why now in Leviticus do we have these laws? And there are various different theories about this.